So we have to see what it looked like through the eyes of the disciples. And so just a quick reminder, remember, they, they come into Jerusalem, he comes into Jerusalem, and now he is beginning to unveil who he really is. Up to this point in Mark, it was very hushed, it was very hidden. But we're only days from the Passion. We're only days from the cross. And so Christ becomes more bold as he begins to unveil his true identity. And as they're walking to the, to the temple the one day, he, he goes to a, a, a fig tree which has leaves on it. And he curses the fig tree. And Mark tells us that the disciples heard him. Which means they understood what he was doing. It wasn't about the fig tree. The fig tree was an analogy. Now the disciples usually miss those types of things. Mark has done the disciples no favor as far as looking good. But they got this one, and I think partly why they got this one is because the fig tree throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over, prophets used the fig tree as an analogy of the judgment of God. And of course, the disciples would have been very well versed in the Old Testament scriptures. So they got what he was saying, what he was doing. He curses this fig tree and has leaves. It looks as though it is healthy and producing life, but on the inside it is dead. And what he is referring to there is the temple. The temple looks grandiose. It looks like it's life. But inside it is far from God. It is far from producing the fruit that Jesus is looking for, that God commands. And so he curses. He says, may no one ever eat of you again. The curse there is essentially saying that Israel will not again be the primary instrument of accomplishing God's purpose. So then he goes in and he, he clears out the temple. And you remember, they're expecting a Messiah. And they know Jesus is the Messiah, but they're expecting a political king. They're expecting a war leader. They're expecting for the Messiah to come and overtake and overthrow the oppression of Rome and bring Israel back to the days of old, the days of King David, and their glory days. This is what they're expecting. And yet they witness this Messiah continually talk about his death, continually talk about how he must suffer, and then curse their temple. So when they're, they're coming the next day, as they pass by in the morning, again, they're staying in Bethany. So they're traveling back and forth each day. This is the Passover, the Passover season. And so everybody's coming to Jerusalem, or they're, they're trying to stay in Jerusalem, but there's outside villages, and Jesus and the disciples are, are staying in Bethany. Every morning they travel back to Jerusalem. And so as they're traveling back, they pass by the fig tree. And, and it says, Mark it makes sure that it, he says, that the fig tree was withered away to its roots. The very foundation of the fig tree, in other words, the very foundation of the temple, is withered away. Withered to the roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look! The fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now we know in Mark... Peter speaks for the twelve. He's kind of a spokesman for the twelve. And so all of them share this feeling. And, and the feeling that we should understand that the twelve have here is shock, awe, terror. 
It terrifies them. What they just witnessed Jesus do. It's terrifying. See, in this time, there wasn't really, the Gentiles had no access to God. I mean, they had, they had a, a, an opportunity to either convert to Judaism or have a pagan god. There's many, many different pagan gods. And if you had a pagan god, you spent your life terrified of angering that pagan god. It was not a deep, intimate relationship, one built on love and trust. It was your pagan god is staring at you, waiting for you to screw up. And if you did, you've got to do all these different things to appease this pagan god. There was this other idea of a god, but that idea of a god was a very distant god. It was a god that created everything and created you, and then just kind of sat back in his lounge chair and watched everything take place. He wasn't intimate. He wasn't involved. He wasn't a part of his creation. He's just kind of watching it to see how it unfolds. And then there's Israel. Israel is the one who has the God that everybody knows, even those who have a pagan God, they understand that Israel's God really is the God of the gods. Because back then, it wasn't very historic, the Old Testament. It wasn't that long ago. There is a plethora of evidence and in, in, in all of this stuff that Israel's God was the one true God. So your best bet is to be Jewish. However, how do you access this God? There's only one way to get into a relationship or to have a right relationship to be able to pray to stand before this one true God, and that is through the temple offering and sacrifices and prayer. See, God dwelled in his temple. And sinful man would, would sin, and so God had set this system in which the, the, the cost for sin is blood, and so you would come to sacrifice something to atone, to cover your sin so that you could stand righteous and pray. And it was all done through this hierarchy. There's this priesthood. Priests represent man to God and God to man. So now think about it. In that context, in that paradigm, all of a sudden, our only way to God, Jesus Christ, has just cursed to death. So in other words, what Peter says when he says, look, the fig tree has withered, he's saying, what do we do now? How do we get to God? Do we live in a, in a, in a, a Judeo-Christian uh, country, and so God is love? It's very common on our lips. It is not common outside of the Western world. And it was never heard of in the context of the time here. It is Jesus Christ who brought that to the world. And it is Jesus Christ who opened the door, not just to Jews in Israel, but to Gentiles. So he says, what, what do we do? How do we go to God? So we can see now why Jesus begins to talk about faith. Jesus answered him. And he said, have faith in God. How is man supposed to stand righteous before God. Remember several weeks ago, we had the same sort of a scenario with the, with the rich man? 
And he says it's easier for you to, to, to string a camel through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get to heaven. And they're shocked. They said, well, what is man to do? And what does Jesus say? Do you remember? With man, it is impossible. That no man stands righteous before a holy God. But with God, all things are possible. The access to God is no longer through religious works or performance. It is by faith and faith alone that we have access to God. This is new and revolutionary to these disciples. And notice how he says, have faith in God, not just have faith. Have faith in God. See, every human being has faith. It's a misnomer if you think to yourself, well, I just need more faith. No, you don't. You've got all the faith you need. We're all born, we're created with this need, this dependency. From very, our very birth, our very first few seconds on the earth, we become dependent. We have faith in our parents. That our parents are going to protect us and help us grow and, and, and supply for us. And, and even if that backfires on us, which unfortunately for some of us that would backfire on us, we begin to look for other places. Really, human beings, all of us, the whole world is just looking for a place to safely place their faith. You don't need more faith. It's often a question of what are you placing your faith in? That becomes the question. And God, Jesus says, put it in God. Don't put it in the temple. Don't put your faith in your religious works. Don't put your faith in yourself and your own abilities. Don't put your faith, rich guy, remember the rich guy? Don't put your faith in money and worldly riches. Put your faith in God. All of those things fail. Faith is like the, the F word for some people because of the negative experiences. But truly, anybody who puts their faith in God grows in faith. It, it's, it's a matter of lacking wisdom and discernment. The things that most people have put their faith in have failed them over and over and over. And yet they will continue to put their faith in those things and not in God. Partly because it seems foolish and weak. And maybe it is. But this is what Jesus is telling us to do, to place our faith in God. And so what does that look like? What does faith in God look like? Well, he goes on to say that it's, it's someone who does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. Believe that you have received it before you even receive it. As you're asking it, believe that God has answered it. In other words, we go to God expecting an answer. That's faith. I am before the throne of God, and He will answer me. This is faith. This is the type of prayer that God has taught. 
James 1 says, echoes this. He says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, being driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he is double-minded, a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. Do you believe in God or do you believe in yourself? Is your faith and hope holy in God Almighty? 100%? Because 50-50 isn't going to do it. There can be no plan B. It's either all in on God or it isn't. The Bible makes it clear, and we all know this from our own personal life experiences, is you can't serve two masters. You can't make two decisions. You can't arrive at two truths. Faith in God is faith in God. And we can expect to receive because He is an all-knowing Father, an all-powerful Father, and He is a good, good Father. And so we go to Him like children go to a good father. And we ask and expect for an answer. Faith in God also gives us access to power. He says in verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Whoever says to this mountain, and so what we have here is a picture of an impossible task. A mountain would have been an analogy for something seemingly impossible. Something that's in the way. Something as big as a mountain. Something that we cannot remove on our own. And so he says, put your faith in God. And ask God, and it will be done for you, that God will remove the mountain. Let's unpack this a little bit and put it in the the paradigm, the thought process of the early church, the first century church. I mean, do we realize that the fact that there is a church building here in Kingston, New York, that there is a pastor and a congregation is one of the greatest miracles the world has ever seen. We take it for granted. But Christianity could not have started without supernatural power. It's a little bit different in the first century than it is being an American Christian. People who became a Christian... almost immediately began to suffer. There was mountains in the way of the Christian church. In Israel, the Judaizers, and in Rome. I mean, this is what it looked like to be a Christian. Your neighbors would see you, you'd be living pretty decent, Rome would be leaving you alone. You know, the Israel doesn't really care about you one way or the other. And so you'd be able to go and trade and make money and have a living and feed your children. You weren't going to get rich, but you were okay. 
And then, you, and then you became a Christian. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. And within weeks, you lost your job and were blackmailed out of any other way to make money that was available. Your taxes were twice as much. And you were constantly mocked. Within a year, if you've got a lot of children, you're probably deciding which one you need to starve to death. And it's all because you became a Christian. It's a far cry from the prosperity gospel that's growing in popularity today. So how is it that Christianity grew? How is it that the church grew? It grew through prayer and faith and God supernaturally moving mountains, bringing to sight the truth of who Jesus Christ is. I mean, if Jesus Christ is God, it's worth everything. If there's any doubt, it's just not worth it. It isn't worth it. This is the task at hand in the United States of America. This is our task as the Kingston Alliance Church. This is what I plead to our people that every day we would go to God in prayer asking in faith that he continue to use and grow the Kingston Alliance Church. Because it doesn't matter what efforts we put into it. If it doesn't happen supernaturally, it doesn't happen. This is also foolishness. It's foolishness and it's weak, according to the world. Faith is, it's blind. You ever notice that they've added the word, the prefix blind, to the word faith? Nowhere in the Bible do you see the word blind. Or a leap of, as though there's an unknown aspect to faith. Or I guess all we can do is pray has become a popular phrase as though like that's the last resort and not the frontline resort of everything that we have. It is shown and proven by this world as a way of foolishness and weakness. It is the strong, the mighty that survive. But we know that in the kingdom of God, it is not the strong and the mighty who will receive that kingdom. It is the weak and the poor and the impoverished and the broken. And so prayer is a complete, and faith is a complete surrender to the fact that I am weak, and I am foolish. I love pause. He reminds the church of Corinthians, uh, of of Corinth, in the second Corinthians, he says, he's talking about this, 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 um, uh, thorn in his side and he goes to God three times and God doesn't remove his thorn. And, and this is what, what God says to Paul. He says, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore I will boast. And then Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How then should we move a mountain? Try harder? Or give up and go to God? Praying in faith that he moves it for us. And then stand in awe as we watch a mountain get tossed into the sea. If faith is God, if faith in God is foolish and weak, then call me a weak fool. Any other weak fools in here? Proud. I boast in my weakness because it is Christ. So how do we handle this whole, okay, God, we, you know, Jesus, he's telling us to have faith and go in prayer with, with faith so we understand it, but how do we have access then to Christ? If you're taking away the temple and there's no place to, to make sacrifice, to atone, to cover our sin, then how then shall we even be able to approach this, the throne of God? And Jesus handles that in, in the 25th verse. He says, and whenever you stand praying, standing in prayer was their custom at that time. So whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. So Israel could not pray unless they atoned for their sin through animal sacrifice. But what they failed to realize is that the animal sacrifice, the blood of goats and bulls, and doves, and the temple itself was all a foreshadowing to the Messiah. So if the Messiah is here, there is no need for the temple. He puts this curse on the temple, and its fate is sealed in less than a week when they turn him over to Rome, and he dies on the cross. So faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross is what he is alluding to here. See, I have covered those sacrifices. I'm about to cover those sacrifices. I'm going to make the one last final sacrifice. My blood will cover all sin. Past, present, and future. You place your faith in me. It is accounted to you. But here's the thing. You don't go to the throne room of God on your own merits. You go on my merits. You're righteous before God because of your faith in me. And the forgiveness that was given you through me. And so to withhold forgiveness from another is to deny in that moment the forgiveness that was given you and thereby standing in front of God on your own merits. Imagine doing something to Ellie, not liking Ellie, having this thing against Ellie, always gossiping about Ellie. And then you come to me, and I know this, and then you come to me and you say, hey, can you do me a favor? <laughs> I'm glad we do you a favor. Fix things with Ellie first. Right? We, we would all feel that way about our children. You don't have a right relationship with my child. You don't have a right relationship with me. And this is what God is saying. It is a testimony. Christians forgive quick. 
And if you struggle with that, remember the cross. That's the idea. Forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. So instead of animal sacrifice, make sure that you're living current in the forgiveness of Christ. This verse here, it says that uh, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that and you that you have received it and you will, and it will be yours. So whatever you whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you received it and it will be yours. There seems to be uh, if you take this out of context, some difficulty with that passage. No, I mean, does he really mean whatever you believe? But we have to put that in context of the whole Bible. And the Christian's heart should not first seek to receive things, right? But to seek to do the will of God. This is what Jesus said, right? When they tried to feed him, I got food you don't know about. Where'd you get food? My food. What fills me, what satisfies me, what brings me life and nourishment and sustainment is doing the will of God of God. Christ cared about that more than he cared about anything else, including his own safety and personal well-being. We see this at the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to get there in Mark 14, but real quick, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is moments from, from the cross. And it says, Mark says that he is greatly distressed and troubled. I mean, do we know what it's like to be greatly distressed and troubled? And Jesus says to them, my soul, my, my soul is very sorrowful. Do we know what it's like to have our soul ache? So that your whole body hurts. And they try to continue to go forward. And Jesus going a little little bit further. Says he fell on the ground. And he prayed. He prayed that if it were possible. The hour might not pass for him. The, The hour might pass for him. This is what he prays. He says, Abba. Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. We see in that prayer exactly the requirements here. He goes to the Father. There is, not only is there forgiveness in his heart, he is sinless. He is the Son of God. And he says, all things are possible with you. There is a statement of faith. He expects to receive from the Father just what he has taught us. He says, let this cup pass for me. He does that at least one more time. And God said, no. Jesus says, yet not what I will, but what you will. God tells the Son of Man, he tells Jesus Christ, no. No. 
This is what faith really looks like. Your will, not mine, regardless of personal cost. <laughs> what Jesus is telling his disciples right here is mind-blowing. He is saying that there is available to them an intimacy with God that nobody had ever even dreamed before. And it all hinged on God saying no to Jesus. If God doesn't say no to Jesus, then everything he says here is not true. It doesn't come true. So our faith, he doesn't say have faith in your comfort. Have faith in your security. Have faith in your bank account. Have faith in your ability. Have faith in God, in his will, in his sovereignty. We have to get it out of our head that people who are joyful are joyful because they lack trials and difficulties and suffering. People who are joyful don't lack those things. They have found purpose in them. That is what joy looks like. It is not the, 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 the lack of difficulty or the absence of difficulty that brings joy. It is having great purpose in the difficulty that brings joy. So, he flips it on the head like he, like he usually does. The temple is no more. Israel is coming to judgment. By the way, in 70 A.D., the temple collapses completely. The whole, the whole religion of Judaism has got to be revamped and has been revamped and revamped and revamped over years to deal with the fact that there is no more temple. And the church grows. It grows out of great persecution and suffering. And here we are 2,000 years later. These words are to us. That our lives should be postured in prayer and faith first, leaning wholly and firmly on God. That we don't lack faith, we often place it in the wrong place. Here is a reminder to examine where your faith is. What is your hope in? What is your heart beating towards? And if it isn't God, place it back there. He is the one who will not fail. He is the one who is sovereign. All of heaven and all of earth will perish, but the word of God will remain. I have a, I'll end with a story. It's a story of faith. It's a story of how I came to faith. I was 15 years old. And I found myself in jail. I was locked up in jail, and you'd stay in jail until it was court date, and you'd go to court, and things would happen in court, and you'd either get released, or you'd go back, or you'd get sentenced. And I kept going back, and going back, and going back. And I was there for several weeks, and the warden uh, had pulled me aside and had um, warned me that he, he had saw my case and that I had been there for several weeks. Uh, and so he reached out to the state of New York to try to put me on an ankle bracelet parole which would have been my only hope. It was kind of like if this ankle bracelet parole thing doesn't come through, um, when I went to court, my next court day coming up, I was going to get max maximum sentence that I could receive. And so he, he, he warned me. He said, listen, I, I went um, 
I went to this guy and he looked over your case and he threw it right in the garbage. He wanted nothing to do with your case. He, he called your case heartbreaking and hopeless. So when you go to court, I hate to tell you, but you're going you're gonna to do maximum time. You're going to be in jail for a couple years at least. <clears throat> so I went back to my cell and I looked at the mountain. What a mountain. It's a lonely place to be. Now, prior to this, ever since we, I got into jail, the Baptists would come. The Baptist church would come, and they'd come once a week, and it, was a, it wasn't mandatory, but, I mean, it beats sitting in your cell. So I would show up to it, and they would sing, and there would be a little sermon or a devotional, and they would hand out Bibles at the end of the service, and I wanted nothing to do with any of it. Because it was weak and pathetic. Bunch of hobo-jobo. Well, the one time my buddy said, dude, grab a Bible. I said, I want nothing to do with the Bible. He goes, yeah, I know, I don't mean like read it. I just mean get one. Because when you stand in front of the judge, it looks really good when you're holding the Bible. That was why I got my first Bible. Was to try to manipulate the judge into thinking I was reformed. Well, when you're in jail, you've got a lot of time, a lot of downtime, and you don't want to get up here. So you're constantly looking for things to distract you. And one day the Bible was sitting there. I had nothing else to read or anything else to do. And so I began to read the Bible, and it was just a New Testament Bible. It wasn't the Old Testament, New Testament. I wouldn't have known to start at Mark, but that's where it was the first chapter. And so I started reading Mark, or Matthew. I started reading Matthew. And I enjoyed the story. It was, a, it was a, a neat story. And every day I was reading it, not as a devotional, not to seek or find God, but the story was touching me. It began to have an effect on me, and I don't even know that I was aware of it. So you fast forward a few, more, a few weeks later, and I get this news from the warden, and I'm sitting in my jail cell with this mountain before me. There is nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. And I don't, I've got to stop the mind from going. And so there's the Bible. I said, well, let me just lose myself in the, the story. And I got to Matthew 21, verse 22. And in that verse it says, whatever you ask, if you ask and believe, if you ask with great faith, it was similar to our passage this morning, if you ask and you don't get doubt, you will receive. And I was just as broken and weak and insufficient enough to believe it. And for the first time in I don't know how many years, I prayed to God. And I asked God, I don't know how you can do it, but if you can do it, get me out of here. Let me experience freedom again. I don't know the exact wording. I really don't. But I knew that I had nothing to lose, and so I maintained that it would happen. And the very next day, in the next few days, people were saying things to me like, man, you've been here a while, you think you're getting out? And I would say to them, I know for a fact I'm getting out soon. And they'd say, oh, that's wonderful. Did you get news from your lawyer or the warden or the judge? And I'd said, no. Well, how do you know you're getting out soon? I said, because I asked God. And they would look at me like, you know, I lost friends. I'm just like, okay. So I went on a chain gang and I'm... 
I get pulled off the chain gang and I'm put into a room by myself and this man in a powder blue suit comes walking in and he sits down across from me and he just stares at me and I stare at him and he says, I'm so-and-so, I'm here from the New York State Department of Parole, the ankle bracelet parole, and I'm looking at your case. And we began to talk and at the end of that conversation I said, so when I go to court on Tuesday, am I going home? And he said, yes. I got out of jail, and the series of events that happened when I got out of jail found myself back on my knees. This time I didn't pray to God. This time I didn't pray to get anything. I was suicidal. I was broken. I was as depressed as you could possibly be. And I called out to Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. And everything changed from there. Everything changed from there. For eternity... It's all different. That's our greatest power. As we think about evangelizing to our neighbor, we look at it as a mountain. We're afraid to, to tell people about God, to tell people about Christ, to proclaim his word, his word, because his word is so foreign in this land. And it's hated and it's despised. Look at the mountain. Stop putting your faith in yourself. Pray that God moves mountains. The prayers of the people while I was in jail, no doubt one answered. He does not turn back anything void. He answers prayer. It is beyond our ability to do anything. By the way, <clears throat> that parole officer is a Christian. I later had a conversation with him. He said he was eating dinner, and my name popped in his head out of nowhere. And it was uh, inspired to give me a chance and he blames the Holy Spirit. Let's all pray in faith. Place all of our faith in the one who moves mountains. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, oh, thank you that we can come to you. Thank you that you desire a relationship with us, an intimate relationship with, with us. God, to think that when I bow my head in prayer, you lean in and turn your ear towards me. That you can hear me better. That you care about my requests. That you want to know what's in my heart, what's troubling me, what's bothering me. Not because you don't know, but because you want a relationship with me. God, let, let me not be a prayer that concentrates on the prayer. Let me not be a prayer that concentrates on the need. God, let me not be a prayer that looks to change you, God, but let me be a prayer that comes looking just to see you, to experience you. This is the great gift that Christ has given us on the cross, that we have relationship with you. And prayer changes me, one degree of glory at a time, making me look more and more like my Father. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to close with Christ, our hope in life and death. Please stand as we sing our final song. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our language?
challenge. I challenge you this week to go out prayerfully and think about where can you boast in God. Be boasters of God this week. Just look for opportunities to make these proclamations of God that people will think you're crazy for. But to let them know that your faith is not in anything else but God. Amen?